Welcome to a special bonus content edition of Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in the great state of New York, and today we'll be presenting a lecture delivered by Lauren at Manchester University in June of 2019. Crime and punishment in the Victorian period is a well-documented and intimately covered topic. However, what has received less critical attention is dedicated exploration of the convergence of crime and Gothic or dark tourism and its real-life implications on leisure activity. Public execution was a thrilling pastime, one more exciting than a trip to a seaside resort. In this paper, my aim is twofold. Firstly, I want to show the blurred boundaries between Gothic tourism and dark tourism in relation to Victorian crime, expanding on the tensions discussed by Emma McAvoy in Gothic tourism. Dark tourism, a term coined by Malcolm Foley and John Lennon, describes tourism relating to death and suffering. Gothic tourism, on the other hand, defines tourism that is intimately connected with Gothic narrative tropes and conventions. McAvoy reminds her readers that some Gothic tourism can be dark tourism, but not all dark tourism fits a Gothic model. Secondly, this paper wishes to place a na- place narratives surrounding women of violent crimes and their associated tourism interests at the forefront of critical discussion. I seek to illuminate their important role in Victorian tourism and the staging of female monstrosity. Numerous accounts document how public execution can capture the imagination and inspire the violent passions of Gothic audiences. One account takes place in my hometown of Swansea. The following description is from a local newspaper report of the time, The Cambrian, and describes the execution of murderer murderer Robert Coe by the executioner William Calcraft on the 12th of April, 1866. The usual collection of showmen set up their stalls, and it was said that some drove their carts right up to the gallows and removed their wheels, which were then hidden so that the police could not move them the next morning. Then they charged a fee to witness their execution from the carts. A crowd of around 15,000 gathered at 7am outside the prison. Robert Cole was calm and controlled. He had spent most of the previous three weeks studying the scriptures, rediscovering his childhood faith he had but since lost. He walked at ease with Calcraft, the hangman, and other officials to the gallows. The Cambrian describes the grim process as, As soon as the wretched man made his appearance upon the drop, a subdued murmur was heard run through the crowd, with one or two shrieks or cries from the women. Four women armed with knives climbed the gallows platform as if to attack the condemned man, and they had been had to be forcibly removed by the police. In the swaying crowds, Women and children were trampled underfoot and 120 injured. The chaplain read the burial service together with texts and scriptures. He finished with the Lord's Prayer, and as the words, Thy will be done, were spoken, the bolt was withdrawn, and the mountain ash murderer Robert Coe plunged into eternity. He died immediately and without struggle. Whether the scenes at this execution were pivotal in bringing an end to public hanging can never be known. But they soon did, and Robert Coe has, has the miserable honour of being the last man to be public hang, publicly hanged at Swansea Jail. What is interesting about the hangman mentioned here is that there, that there has been some speculation that he sometimes acted in a way to make the execution more entertaining. To add to the macabre scene, Calcraft did not use the table of drops, which was the method designed to make sure that hanging was done in a more humane way by measuring the height and the weight of the condemned. It was possible to calculate the perfect drop that saw the prisoner's neck break instantly. Yet those hanged by Calcraft often found themselves strangling to death, which took up to 20 minutes as the execution 
was often in front of large crowds, with one rumour to be around 30,000 people strong. He would often pull on the legs or climb onto the shoulders of the criminal being executed in a bid to hasten their death, and probably to make it look terribly dramatic for the crowd whose passions and patience were starting to boil over as justice took too long to be dealt out. Execution was commodified, as the above illustrates. Money was to be made by local businessmen who could sell goods, and more importantly, it led to the production of literary souvenirs in the form of ballads and broadsides. Public spectacle of crime altered the literary market. Its appropriation marks a significant moment of entanglement, namely in Penny Dreadfuls and the newspaper Illustrated Police News, which was founded in 1864. While the Penny Dreadfuls often dealt with the more fantastical stories, the Illustrated Police News reported factual reports of arrests and of court happenings, which meant that any literate person could, albeit in a basic way, afford themselves with a limited knowledge of the criminal justice system. Yet the world of newspaper reporting and the fantastical did seem to collide in 1888 in the sensational way with the Whitechapel murders. While the Illustrated Police News grounded themselves in reporting what happened, magazines such as Punch, who produced more generally satirical cartoons, seemed to be rising up passions of their readership with fantastical characters such as the Nemesis of Neglect. This is part of the reason, in my opinion, that there was never arrest made in this case. Members of the press were focused on a supernatural element of the case, and the inoperability did not exist. This is further compounded by two of the standout letters in the case. The first is the Dear Boss letter, which was delivered to the Central News Agency in London with a postmark of the 27th of September 1888 and forwarded to Scotland Yard on the 29th of September 1888. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they'd look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job, dried with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the ladies' ears off and send the police officers just for jollies, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back until I do more work, then give out, give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the na- the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before. I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. The idea of using the victim's blood has a ghoulish and vampiric taste to it. However, in the From Hell letter, which was not handed into a member of the not to member of press, but head of the vigilance committee, George Lusk, the macabre theme continues. The letter was dropped off at his home address and was handed to him by his daughter. As he ate breakfast, the parcel not only contained the following letter, but half a kidney, which, while was reported to be human, could not be identified for certain. From hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, I sent you half the kidney I took from the woman, preserved it for you, the t'other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it if you wait a while, if you wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. There is no wonder that they felt ultimately this work was down to a monster with the actions reported in the letter and the idea that this was written in hell. So the fact that they felt 
that it was theatre staring at the passions of the citizen of, citizens of London can again be no surprise. The main culprit being Richard Manfield, Mansfield, who at the time of the first murders was playing the title character in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at Henry Irving's Lyceum Theatre. Here is clear evidence of the collapse between the dark and gothic. There were some that thought that the spectacle of public execution was obscene. Charles Dickens was one of them. Part of the idea was that they did not think such public spectacles were fit for the public to see, as they often were such a public affair that the whole families would attend. Part of the concern was due to the fact that they felt that it would raise criminal passions within fueling them to commit crime, especially when there were ballads and keepsakes on sale that would discuss the criminal in a way that saw them as some sort of tragic hero. Well, ultimately, he believed that capital punishment was a necessary evil. He did not feel that it was the civilised thing to have it done in public. It brought out the worst in people, as he describes in the following passage. I was a witness of the execution at Hosmonger Lane this morning. I believe that the sight inconveniently awful as the wickedness and levity of the immense crowd collected at the execution this morning could be imagined by no man and could be presented in no heathen land under the sun. The horrors of the gibbet and the cri of the crime which brought that wretched murders to it faded in my mind before the atrocious bearing looks and language of the assembled spectators. When he, the two miserable creatures who attracted all this ghastly sight about them, were turned quivering into the air, there was no more motion, no more pity, no more thought that two immortal souls had gone to judgment, no more restraint of any of the previous obscenities than of than if the name of Christ had never been heard in this world, and there were no belief among men that they had perished like beasts. The dramatic scene in execution ceased in 1868 when Parliament passed a Prisons Act that stopped public executions. Dickens and his contemporaries achieved their goal and the Act was passed which saw executions now firmly taking place behind prison walls. And it was Carl Craft himself who had the duty of not only performing the last public execution but the first private one too. Engaging the execution and crime was not just restricted to the acts of reading and visiting the moment of death, but also by consuming it by proxy. For example, on Whitechapel Road, in a shop where curiosities had once been on display, there was now another staple of Victorian tourism, the waxwork. Unlike the more established and more likely better quality that would be found in Madame Tussauds, these waxworks would spring it up in haste as each murder was committed. The waxwork depicted the scene of the murder as it was reported in the newspaper. However, as these were seen to be obscene, they were later forced to close, while the more respectable Madame Tussauds remained open. The general distaste of fueling violent passions, as presented by Dickings, with gendered language, it can be imagined by no man, as is as mentioned in the Swansea account, women too could be inspired to engage with the taste of violence, yet there is growing tension of representing women as creatures of willing violent acts. More importantly, women played a prominent role in the development of the macabre tourism activities, as you know too much passion, especially for the women of the household, was problematic. The idea of the angel of the household versus the fallen woman was one that was so strict that it until Ellen Terry became a dame, even actresses were thought to be fallen women. Madame Tussauds, I feel, played along the fine line, and I am sure that she herself had not recognised the fact that criminals in what later would become the Chamber of Horrors, labelled up by Punch magazine, 
in what she called a separate room, she too may have found herself falling foul of the hypocritical moral decency of the Victorian era. To give you some background on the history of Two Swords Waxwork Exhibition, it started life in France in 1783 as the Carnivere de Grand Voleurs, the Cavern of the Great Thieves, by Madame Two Swords' mentor, Dr. Philippe Curtis. When Madame Two Swords first came to England with a touring version of what would become the Chamber of Horrors, Madame Two Swords herself never referred to it as the Chamber of Horrors. To her, it was known as the Separate Room. During the days of touring, the exhibit beginning in the Lyceum Theatre in 1802, the criminals, which did include some examples of Dr. Curtis's work from the Cavern, separately from the notable dignitaries that made up, up the majority of the exhibit. It wasn't not until 1835 that the exhibit settled in London, with the name Chamber of Horrors being given to it after a satirical cartoon appeared in Punch magazine. Dr. Curtis had taught his student how to take life and death masks in the case of the majority of the British criminals that made up the Chamber of Horrors, the measurements from life, usually as they are awaiting execution. The fact that Two Swords called it the separate room shows that she understood, while her audience may be interested in the subject, that was that there was potential harm to the way that she was the way that they were seen. Two Swords' main focus was on dignitaries of the day, as it was a chance for the ordinary person to see the people that they may have only heard of. As McAvoy quite rightly asserts, Gothic tourism, or at least the appreciation of Gothic tourism, requires a certain taste, and the fact that Two Swords kept it separate from the more respectable figures shows that she understood this herself. As the ghouls kept inside what became the Chamber of Horrors not only could be seen in bad taste, but to, but to Victorian sensibilities could indeed inspire passions of destruction and criminality within the hearts of its audience. While some may be scandalised by a room full of criminals, the room became an, an intimate space to expose real-life female monstrosity. Within this separate room, there were two of the most sinister by, by the standards of the day, and in some ways the most worrying exhibits in the separate room. To me, these are the prolific infant serial killer Amelia Dyer and the rather unfortunate figure of Eleanor Mary Piercy. Amelia Dyer was a baby farmer who, by estimation and not confession, is alleged to have killed between 300 and 600 infants in what is believed to be a 20-year career. She was a baby farmer that advertised an adoption service to women who, whether due to not being able to afford their child or they were unmarried, would write to Dyer, meet and pay the, her the adoption fee. Unfortunately, Dyer would pocket the fee and often kill the baby. The majority of the babies that she killed were strangled, parceled up and placed in the river. She was transformed into a supernatural being, a mythic, abhuman figure, where she was labelled the Ogress of Reading and a popular ballad was written. Her actions are at odds at what a Victorian woman should be, much like Dracula's Lucy Westenra, who is dubbed the Bluffer Lady for her leading away and maiming small children. Dyer, who should have been trustworthy, not only as a woman but as a mother too, steps into what was seen as a worrying territory by forsaking her humanity to become a creature, which is seen with her being labelled the Ogress of Reading. If we compare that to the criminal Frederick Deeming, who also killed and buried his children under the flagstones of his kitchen, his villainy is seen as less scandal-making, as he was a man, although he went on again to kill in Australia and claimed he was Jack the Ripper at his execution. There was less sensationalism around him. 
But the interesting thing with deeming is that Two Swords bought the kitchen, including the flagstone that his children were buried under, restraging the space of violence for tourists. There is a tale that the items were cursed, as on installation the flagstones crushed a worker, and here he shares the same rather notoriety with Mary Piercy. Barry Piercy was convicted of killing her lover's child, wife and child, Phoebe, and Tiggy Hogg by slitting the throat of Mrs. Hogg and allowing poor baby Tiggy choking on a toffee. It is unclear how Two Swords acquired these relics as they should have been kept in police evidence. What was unique about these exhibits is that they followed in the same vein as the murder houses. One example would be the home of the London Burkers, a crime that is covered in great detail in Sarah Wise's The Italian Boy. Grey robbers that took to murdering and some of their victims were even murdered at their home in Nova Scotia Gardens. Police, such as they were in 1835, found items from the victims within the property where they had been living with their apparently unknowing family. Whilst the trail was in progress, the landlord of Nova Scotia Gardens, who found himself unable to rent the property, took visitors for a penny a time around the small holding, showing them where the crimes had possibly taken place. With Piercy, two swords bought the kitchen of the home, and according to historian Lizzie, Lindsay Civita, do still have some of these items in their archives. While assisting with a recent inventory of the stores, they did, up until recently, also have one of the supposed magic weapons the toffee that choked Tiggy. I am sure that it just lent some notoriety to the exhibit. As with all small and salubrious exhibits, advertising was key. Madame Tussauds made that made that the sure that the public knew that they had the best and most shocking artifacts to please the crowded in the absence of public execution. The Gothic and dark tourism captured the imaginations of the Victorian audiences to the extent that it spilled over into their everyday life. It became its own entity and is still very much alive in spirit today. While those infamous works of Madame Tussauds may only be heads stored safely away from the audience's eyes, it is our duty to remember them, to remember their stories and to learn from them. While their crimes are despicable and unthinkable, I think that their ends must be a lesson to all of us. Women of unthinkable crimes must be historically examined and must remain critical as to why real-life monstrosity requires supernatural speculation or erasure from memory.